Hi, I'm Sarah. I have an awesome husband and three amazing stepdaughters. Marriage and parenting is already a juggling act, and blended family relationships are even more messy and fragile. We won't always get it right the first time, but if you're looking for encouragement, you're in the right place. Thanks for joining us as we grow closer as step families. Welcome to His Kids, Her Kids, Episode 4, Needs of People, Large and Small. It's happened to all of us. You're picking up groceries or going down the aisle in your neighborhood store, and your child comes to you with something in their hands and this pleading look in their eyes. I need this, they say. How can you argue with that? Everything in us wants to meet the needs of our children. But what do they need? Babies come into this world a huge bundle of needs. They can't do anything for themselves. So every ounce of nourishment, every diaper that needs to be changed, every time they need to be soothed to sleep, it's all on their parents. The parent-child relationship is forged long before the child has any awareness or choice in the matter. Step-parents as later arrivals in their child's life, could easily assume that their relationship has entirely missed out on the attachment cycle. And if so, they couldn't be more wrong. Children's needs don't end with infancy. And in fact, even adults find themselves experiencing the same needs as young children. I remember one of my first foster parent trainings— They said that the two overarching messages that were most important for foster children was love and security. Yet another speaker called it adoration and boundaries. And then finally, Karen Purvis calls it nurture and structure. I believe all three were referring to the same thing. On the one hand, love, adoration, nurture. This is less about checking a box and saying, well, yeah, I love them and more about gushing with adoration, liking them, lighting up like a Christmas tree when they walk in a room. Imagine channeling your inner grandmother, just wanting to always give them the candy, buy them the toy, having a relationship where you're always on their side, even if they were the first one to hit the other kid in the face. Whereas boundaries structure, and security speak to rules, guidance. The grown-ups are in charge. This dynamic is very important to a child's sense of well-being. And in foster parent training, they talked about this being so essential to a child that they would actually sacrifice being loved and adored in exchange for feeling like there's a sense of security and knowing what to predict from the future. We're going to talk more specifically about nurture and structure in a future episode, but for now I just wanted to touch on this as we move into today's topic, the five building blocks to healthy relationships. Now, of course, children and adults have more than five needs, but we had to stop somewhere because we only have so much time for this episode. So we're going to talk about attention, relational safety, relational belonging, identity, and accountability. The first four of these would go in the love, adoration, and nurture category, 
with the last being in the security, boundaries, and structure category. So this episode is really heavy on the nurture side of things, but don't worry, we're going to cover structure more thoroughly in future episodes. When it comes to attention, you don't even need to be a parent of any kind to know that kids need and require a great deal of attention. I'm not just talking about when things get quiet and you find out they've gotten into the flower. I'm talking about when I call another mom on the phone and she's constantly needing to attend to her children. And she says, they were just fine for the last hour, but as soon as I get on the phone, all of a sudden they're in my face asking me this, asking me that, demanding my attention. Whether it's the young child riding his bike and saying, look, mom, no hands, or the full-grown athletic star being interviewed after just winning the Super Bowl and saying, hi, mom, on camera. We crave our parents' attention and affirmation. Unfortunately, children often ask for our attention in very annoying ways. Interrupting, dominating conversation, following us around like they're our shadow, learned helplessness, begging us to take pictures and videos of them all the time. These are all classic examples of children begging for our attention and adoration. When I was teaching English in China, I was spread very thin with a great many students. I don't remember the exact number, but it was definitely in the multiple hundreds. And I would see each class one time each week. Now, because I was spread so thin and my content was not going to be tested, many students saw my class as the perfect opportunity to take a mental nap or otherwise misbehave. Classroom management is something every teacher has to deal with, but in my particular situation, I'm dealing with a huge language barrier in addition to all kinds of cultural dynamics that I was just thrown into. I didn't learn this right off the bat, but I did eventually realize that it was far better to notice the students who were standing out for all the wrong reasons and give them attention, making them my teacher's helper, giving them some kind of task, or otherwise including them in some lighthearted joke. I learned a very valuable lesson in that experience, that it was so much faster and more enjoyable to meet the child's need for attention, although they were expressing it in such an unpleasant and annoying way, rather than trying to squash them and assert that I am the only one in front of the classroom today. That's just in a classroom environment. One-on-one, you have the opportunity to pour attention over children in your family. And believe me, everything inside of them just wants to drink it up. The message I want to leave you with when it comes to showering attention on our children and stepchildren is to think of attention as saying, I see you. The next need is relational safety. And the message for relational safety is, you are a different person than me. Another way to think of relational safety is relational safety is the anti-fear. Any fear that a child experiences in relationship with you is the opposite of the relational safety we want to foster between us. Fear in parent-child relationships 
might look differently than we expect. Yes, it can look like avoiding eye contact, but it can also look like lying and being unwilling to admit to mistakes. This reminds me of a story my husband has shared with me. One day, he came home from work and saw a crayon masterpiece drawn right on his living room wall. When he asked his little girl whether the artwork was hers, she gave a wide-eyed denial. But later, she regretted her decision, came back to my husband, and said, Yes, I did that. When two people in a relationship are able to express feelings, have varying opinions, have different interests, and are able to admit their mistakes to each other, there is relational safety. Fear can even rear its ugly head when it comes to something that seems to us as simple as not remembering to give a five-minute warning when it's time to get off the computer and transition to reading time, or a predictability when it comes to consequences for disrespectful behavior. I couldn't disagree more with Machiavelli, who asserts in his book The Prince that it is safer to be feared than loved. I would encourage you to examine your family relationships, identify times and circumstances where you tend to fall back on threats or intimidation. Let's sweep the fear out and open the door to relational safety. Next up is relational belonging. Whereas relational safety is the anti-fear, relational belonging is the anti-rejection. The message behind relational belonging is I'm on your team. Another word for this is unconditional love, but I've observed that people will use this term and really not know what it means. Let me tell you what it is not. Unconditional love is not losing your temper and sending a child away from you, saying, come back when you've decided to be a member of this family. And it's not finding out that your child has texted inappropriate pictures and they've now been distributed and saying, well, you got yourself into this mess and you'll have to figure out how to get yourself out of it. I'm not saying that relational belonging means that we are going to give excuses and protect our children from their consequences. Not at all. What I'm saying is that we can choose to identify with them and always be on their team, even when they break our heart or even in the midst of us having to enforce boundaries in our family. A great example of relational belonging that I recently found is in a book that I just read titled Bare Bones, written by Bobby Bones. I could argue that Bobby is the most famous stepson in America. Every day, he hosts the Bobby Bones Show, which is the country's largest country music radio morning show, and he wrote this best-selling book, which is his autobiography about growing up poor in rural Arkansas. Speaking of which, if you know of any celebrities that have a strong identity as being a stepkid or being a step-parent, I would love to know who they are. Really, Bobby Bones is the only one that I can think of at all. So please send me that information at www.hiskidsherkids.com. Thanks. Okay, so in the book, Bobby is telling the story about an argument that ended up happening between one of his co-hosts, Lunchbox, and one of his other co-hosts, Amy, live on the air. 
I didn't know this about Amy, but apparently in her history, she has previously struggled with bulimia. And on this particular day, someone had sent a box of chocolates to the show and they were having some friendly banter about, you know, who did these chocolates really belong to? And Amy's position was, hey, you know, everyone on the show gets some chocolate. And Lunchbox just really was ganging up on her. He's being really mean. He's egging her on, bringing up her history with bulimia, saying like, hey, look how mad she gets when you take food away from her. Eat the address label and then you'll really know who the chocolates belong to. In his book, Bobby says, most people would have stopped at a certain point, but not Lunchbox. Amy was so upset about it and was talking about quitting her job as a result. So this was apparently not the first experience of this kind on the show because on page 96, Bobby says, The bad blood between these two had gone far enough. I had to mediate and make them at least relax around each other. Peace didn't come immediately, or even close to immediately. I think it actually took a couple of years. But finally, they worked it out. Then on page 98, he says, Lunchbox hated everybody when they first joined the gang. He hated Amy. He hated Ray. He hated Eddie. It's happened every single time with every single person that comes in. But as with any family, I always say, no one's going anywhere. You're just all going to have to sort it out. Another example of this is found in one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Downton Abbey. Mary, the eldest daughter of the noble family, has found herself in a very dangerous position in terms of her reputation. A man has died in her bed, and somehow her grandmother, Lady Violet, has caught wind of it. Mary and her mother are very concerned about what Lady Violet is going to do, because as the family matriarch, she is all things virtue and honor. Lady Violet makes her decision that she's not going to expose her granddaughter, and Mary's American mother is actually quite surprised. Lady Violet says, My dear, Mary holds the trump card, because Mary is family. Family should be the very definition of relational belonging, the gold standard of unconditional love. Unfortunately, however, that has not been the experience for many of the children that we are raising. Many of them have lived through the opposite of relational belonging and have been marked by trauma. And so, similarly to children in foster care or adopted from an orphanage environment, they can be a really tough sell when it comes to relational belonging. They need to know that this thing called family is really as strong and as trustworthy as you say it is. And they will test this just like you would test a rope before trusting it to support your weight. These children are going to test you whether or not you really mean what you say, whether they can count on you when the going gets rough. Admittedly, this can be one of those situations where we find that blood is thicker than water. Not long ago, a divorced friend of mine told me that she's heard it said recently that the only lifelong relationships Americans can count on is that with their children. 
it really made me sad to hear her say this because as much as people are getting married and remarried, to think that they're not even thinking of that relationship as being a lifelong relationship. But it does show that people see their children as being a relationship that will last for their whole life. If you feel like you're fighting with your spouse about whether or not your stepkids really did hang the moon, I would encourage you to find ways to rejoice for your stepkids that they have a parent who loves them like that and find ways to join them in their experience of relational belonging with your stepkids. Now don't despair. Coming up in a future episode titled Bringing Up Behaviors with Your Spouse, I'm going to speak to the original parents, both biological and adoptive, about embracing your perspective as the step-parent, welcoming your perspective as a fresh set of eyes rather than as the unwelcome outsider's perspective. The fourth need we're addressing today is identity. While attention, relational safety, and relational belonging are largely regarding the present, Identity ties in the past and stretches out to the future. It addresses the questions in a child's heart, where did I come from and where am I going? Now, there's a lot of layers when it comes to identity. I mean, think about all the ways we identify ourselves. In American culture, we lead often with what kind of work we do. I'm a teacher. I'm a full-time mom. I'm a student. We'll also talk about our hobbies. I'm a hunter. I'm a gamer. I'm a musician. These are all examples of individual identities, but some of the most powerful ways that we identify is as a member of a group. So examples of this are being a fan of a sports team, working for a specific employer, and being a member of a family. There's also the ways that we identify from beliefs and values, like I am worthy I am kind, and I make friends easily. Another example of this is being from somewhere. My husband is from the deserts of Southern California, and I'm still learning all that that means. He uses more lotion than I do, he loves sandals, and aggressively loathes mosquitoes. The girl's mom is also from California, and it's been fascinating for me to hear the girls talk about being from California when only one of them has ever lived there at all, and she was even way too young to even remember it. So I said that identity was also about tying into the future. I'm talking about recognizing a child's talents, their potential, the things that they're interested in, things that speak to what lies ahead of them. When we talk about their happy future, you're giving them your vote of confidence that they're going to be able to overcome any challenges that they face. I remember an evening walk with my dad when I was a preteen, and somehow we started talking about what I'd like to be when I grew up. And I said, well, I just don't know. I like to act, I like to sing, and I like to ride horses. I'm not sure how I'll be able to choose between them. My dad said, you could become a singing dramatic cowgirl. I know that there are so many other things that my dad could have said that night, but I remember what it felt like to hear him encouraging me that day. 
I did, in fact, pursue all three horseback riding, vocal, and theater performance as avocational pastimes that have brought me joy and many stories to share. The key message behind identity is I know who you are. And the key message for accountability is I know what you are capable of. Otherwise known as, and I'm here to help you get there. Meeting a child's need for accountability addresses their need to grow. I recently learned that 15% of parents with children aged 18 through 28 call or text them to make sure they don't sleep through class or an important test. You might be able to relate to them if you are still reminding your teenager to clean their room and brush their teeth. Strengthening accountability in our family culture looks like talking about goals, having coaching moments and conversations where you help each other identify what you really want and how you can take steps towards it. I remember my first summer as a stepmom. I sat down with my stepkids and I said, hey, let's talk about our goals for the summer. And I remember there were things on the list like go for a picnic, go to a national park, make lemonade, make homemade ice cream. And then each week and each day, we would create smaller versions of those same lists. Let's, let's talk about what we want to do today. You know, what do we want to prioritize today? Or what do we want to prioritize this week? That is an example of a really fun way to have goals because a lot of these goals were a lot more like wish lists for me to choose from that were like treats, you know, fun things to do for the summer. Other examples of encouraging accountability in our family can look like predictable experiences when it comes to children's behavior. By this, I mean rewards and predictable consequences. You might try using checklists and timers, following up after a child has done a project to see if they've actually completed it. This can come to chores, earning screen privileges, and even cultivating healthy sibling relationships. A story that reminds me of the importance of accountability happened when a younger brother of mine was probably around the age of five. He had caught a frog in our backyard and put it in a bucket, and his intention was to take care of it and keep it as a pet. Well, he didn't tell anybody about this, and a few days later, when he found the frog dead in the same bucket, he was beside himself with grief. And he came running into the house, showing my mom the dead frog, and just so upset. And she was just as upset. She didn't even know the frog existed, and there had, would have been no way for her to have kept this from happening because she didn't even know about it. She wasn't even able to provide him with the accountability he needed to successfully have a pet frog. Accountability is like holding our child's hands as they learn how to walk. They'll get to the point where they don't need to hold your hand anymore while they walk, but they will need you to steady their bike as they go for their first ride without training wheels. You see, our need for accountability never stops. It just changes. 
you're probably still having accountability conversations with your spouse about dental visits, annual physicals, and following your household budget. We never outgrow our need for accountability, and exposing the children that we are raising with healthy accountability will skyrocket them to success in life. You will be amazed at what your family can accomplish when this message is spoken in love. And this is going to be the topic of our next episode, Nurture and Structure. As you create a family dynamic of consistent and generous adoration and security by overwhelming children with attention, kicking out fear-inducing habits that you may have, proving that you aren't going anywhere, even emotionally, celebrating their past and future, and holding out a helping hand of accountability as they learn new skills and habits. You are meeting your child's and stepchild's needs and forging a lifelong ironclad relationship. I look forward to hearing the story of your journey. Keep growing and take good care.